You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Winhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that are going on in our field, the ways that we interact with clients, the things that help us, and the very bright and yet vague future of the ways that research and research-flavored things end up coming in to help us in the ways that we utilize them. Research-flavored? Well, as we dive into this, we're going to oh, get into how in 1989, President George Bush the Elder declared the 1990s as the decade of the brain. And this launched a multi-billion dollar initiative to start to really understand the way that the brain was going to be made. And ever since then, the National Institute of Health in the United States, equivalent agencies across the world, spend tens of billions of dollars each year to better figure out how our brains work. And the reason that we're talking about this here in this episode is as more and more research gets published, as things come out of this research, therapists start to use terms like neuroscience. And we use explanations of things in neuroscientific sorts of ways. And this has ultimately proven out to be a load of garbage. <laughs> a load of garbage. A hot steaming pile load of garbage. Because subsequent to... This is Kurt at therapyreimagined.com. <laughs> Yes. Title all of your emails in response to this episode to me, Kurt at therapyreimagined.com. I will read and open and respond to every email that is titled In Defense of Vaguely Neuroscientific Things. <laughs> but each decade since the 1990s has been declared some variation of the decade of the brain or the decade of neuroscience. And at this point, being 33 years into it, $330 billion worth of research into the United States, billions of dollars elsewhere in the world. Are we actually doing anything with this research that affects most of us as therapists? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like we should. It seems like we should. And we're going to get to... Why we continue to do this stuff kind of throughout this episode, but we're going to talk about a couple of research studies that have happened over the last decade or so that really lay into the crux of, is this actually useful research for mental health? Now, we've had past guests on the podcast here, past therapy reimagined speakers. Kristen Syme, for example, talking about things like, we have a lot of contributions into things like depression that aren't necessarily things like neurotransmitters, that we're a lot more complex creatures than being able to take a picture of the brain and be able to be like, yep, that's your depression spot. If we just push on that one in the right way, we'll massage the depression (laughs) right out of you. And then people feel better. And despite people like Dr. Syme being really wonderful and calling out some of the crap in the fields that we tend to still buy lock, stock, and two smoking barrels into a number of what the research calls neuromyths. And these are things that we tend to believe and just kind of pass on as 
things that explain why we do things, whether or not they're actually real. So, you know, one of the really common ones, there's been enough movies made about this over the, you know, decades. It's like, you know, humans only use 10% of their brains. And hopefully most of our audience already knows that that one's a steaming pile of garbage. And <laughs> But there is plenty of continued cultural just kind of understanding that these myths are actually true. I'm looking at an article from uh, Howard Jones. This came out in 2014 and was a cross-cultural study of the prevalence of neuromyths amongst practicing teachers. And on this neuromyth alone, nearly half of the teachers in five different, very different cultural areas all believed this one to be true. So recognize that this is not just mental health practitioners here, but this does speak to, you know, if people from China, Greece, the Netherlands, and the UK are all believing this at about 50%, it stands to reason that there's some pervasiveness in the cultural aspects of this. Now, Katie, as I'm talking about this, what are some of the neuro myths that you might be hearing within our field and things that we might be passing along? I think there's a lot of things that seem to be related to how we use the brain. And so there's like left brain, right brain, introverts and extroverts use their brains differently. Learning style, like you have to teach people in the way that they will best receive it, that their brains work in a certain way. And I don't know if those are myths or truths, but I hear a lot about our brains works in a specific ways and in predictable ways based on whether it's diagnosis or personality factors or whatever, and we need to adjust to them. And everything that you are describing here are amongst the things listed in this same article. And the prevalence of these things ranges, you know, anything from like 90% of you know, teachers believing this kind of stuff. And we just kind of take this of like, if everybody's talking about it, then it must be true. I know for myself, you know, I've shared some of these things in the past. Like, oh, if you tend to learn better by moving around, I mean, you've sat next to me at enough conferences and workshops that <laughs> I don't sit still and I don't really pay attention when I'm sitting still, but I also don't pay attention very well when I'm in motion either. No. <laughs> <laughs> And so into the research of learning styles, a lot of this stuff has been debunked, but it's so culturally present that yeah. we just kind of continue to echo what's already being said. And some of the other things that are listed in this article is that drinking six to eight glasses of water a day or failure to do so can cause people's brains to shrink. And 29% of the teachers in the United Kingdom agreed with this, 25% in Turkey. So these are things that are not necessarily present in all cultures. China on the same one, only 5% of teachers believe this. So there is some evidence of cultural variations in this, which could make us more prone to just believing those who are around us and using this even in sessions of like, yeah, if everybody's saying it around us, then it's probably true for you as well. Well, I think about the the TikTok or Instagram therapists or even just health and wellness influencers that put a lot of this stuff out as fact. And then also 
the stuff that kind of feels true. And so, you know, is that confirmatory bias? Is that something where you're, you're believing something and so you're making it happen? I mean, is it that there's no evidence or is it that the evidence is the reverse? Some combination of all of the above. Okay. I'm going to talk about two articles from 2008 that kind of laid out where some of these problems are. Okay. The first is a 2008 article by McCabe and Castell. In their study, they presented study participants with articles summarizing results of fictitious research in the field and asked people to answer questions of how much they agreed with the following statements. Like the article was well written, the title was a good description, things like that. Now, in a control group, this is just kind of a normal article. In the experimental groups, they included various levels of things like brain images, or they included things like, you know, graphs that showed, you know, bar graphs and this kind of stuff. The content of the written part of the articles was exactly the same in all of them, but people rated the articles that were all completely fictitious and made up. They rated the articles with images of brains as being more believable and more authoritative than those that had bar graphs or those that had no graphics whatsoever. So just the image of posting a brain or an MRI scan of something makes an article more believable, whether or not the supporting evidence goes along with it or or not. And when you're looking for... (laughs) You know, what our art is for this episode, that's why we are going to have a brain image. On the... <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> and, you know, if you're going to use this kind of information mischievously, just start throwing MRI scans into any talk that you do, whether or not it has anything to do with the brain or not. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm coming in for, you know, tendonitis in my ankle. Well, you see, here's an MRI of the brain, and here's what overuse... <laughs> like, this is basically what this article says. It's like just having an image of a brain there makes it feel more authoritative. So the more credibility comes with a picture of the brain. Yes. We have All spent right. billions of dollars knowing that the brain does magic. And let's put a picture of it there. And that makes it more believable. All right. All right. Uh, another 2008 study. This was done by Weisberg et al. They gave participants four different versions of text on various psychological phenomena and the explanations of these phenomena. And so there was picture, you know, a box. We can post a, a graphic of this in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. But in their four different boxes, they have good explanations of a psychological phenomena without neuroscience a good explanation of the same phenomena with some neuroscience stuff in there, a bad explanation of the phenomena without neuroscience, and a bad explanation with neuroscience. And so, Is there an example of that? Because I'm trying to understand what that actually means. So what they used is a good explanation without neuroscience. The researchers claim that this quote-unquote curse happens because subjects have trouble switching their point of view to consider what someone else might know mistakenly projecting their own knowledge onto others. That is a good explanation without neuroscience. So a good explanation of not being able to see from somebody else's perspective. Correct. Now, a good explanation with neuroscience. 
Brain scans indicate that this quote-unquote curse happens because of the frontal lobe brain circuitry known to be involved in self-knowledge. Subjects have trouble switching their point of view to consider what someone else might know, mistakenly projecting their own knowledge onto others. Okay. So the difference is words like brain scan, frontal lobe, brain circuitry, self-knowledge. Got it. Got okay. it. And that, that's good because it's accurate. Yes. It describes what's happening and it adds with neuroscience. Now, a bad explanation without neuroscience. Researchers claim that this quote-unquote curse happens because subjects make more mistakes when they have to judge the knowledge of others. People are much better at judging what they themselves know. Okay. And a bad explanation with neuroscience. Brain scans indicate that this quote-unquote curse happens because of the frontal lobe brain circuitry known to be involved in self-knowledge. Subjects make more mistakes when they have to judge the knowledge of others. People are much better at judging what they themselves know. Okay. So... Now we're getting into, all right, we've got some explanations, some with neuroscience knowledge, some with good explanations, some with bad. We have four comparison groups here. Got it. Now, what they did is they presented these four types of explanations to three distinct groups of people. One is a group of people who are novice or have no knowledge of neuroscience sort of stuff, and they asked them to rate these four different things. And what the novice group did is they recognized that the good explanations, both with and without neuroscience, tended to be more positive, and the bad explanations without neuroscience were really negative, and the bad explanations with neuroscience were slightly positive as far as believability. Okay. Group two is neuroscience students, people who are studying or have some background with some neuroscience. Group three was experts in neuroscience. So this is where I'm going to say most of mental health practitioners have some knowledge and an interest in neuroscience just by virtue of being in our field and having people talk about neuroscience. So So the middle group, the middle group, but the middle group. Okay. Yes. So the middle group, good explanations without neuroscience had basically no effect. It was rated as completely neutral. (laughs) Bad explanations without neuroscience were pretty good at recognizing those. There's a really, So, so they were seen as negative. They were seen as very negative. Okay. Good explanations with neuroscience, slightly more positive, but bad explanations with neuroscience, we were, we believed them more than people with no neuroscience background whatsoever. (laughs) So because there was neuroscience in there, we were like, sure, that sounds great. If it sounds good... And it has neuroscience in it, whether or not it's true, we actually tend to believe it if it's got neuroscience language in it, and it sounds like crap. <laughs> it sounds more sciencey. Yes. Sounds more experty. And this, okay, so comparing this to the experts, they rated most highly and most believable, and about halfway between novice and student or that middle group, but they rated the best way of describing things as the good explanations without neuroscience. 
the bad explanations without neuroscience, they rated horribly. But the good explanations with neuroscience, the experts also rated as having a negative effect. And the bad explanations with mm. neuroscience, they also rated quite horribly, but not as badly as the bad explanations without neuroscience. So in the follow-up of this, what the conclusion was is that even the experts are saying that adding in neuroscientific terms doesn't actually help us to make any sort of change with the language that's being in there. We're better off being more succinct and not adding in a bunch of neuroscience mumbo-jumbo than we are to just telling people like, okay, if this is a thing about perspective taking, let's talk about perspective taking without putting in there like, oh, here's frontal lobe deficits that cause some people to have more challenges with this. At the end of the day, if the intervention is take a different perspective on this, we're better off according to the neuroscience experts of just telling people, let's work on taking a different perspective on this. Got it. Is there in the discussion any ideas why this, why the, the group that we would likely fit in are more likely to rate neuroscience more highly? You have already given that answer in this episode, and it is because <laughs> it feels good. Ah, there, there is. So there's like, we're, we're fans of neuroscience. We think it sounds sciencey. It feels good. So we're going to add. Well, and think of especially those of us who are very well educated and possibly even overeducated in that we tend to like data. We tend to like things that sound good. We tend to like coming out of a few minutes of information with, you know what, that adds something to my little electric oatmeal up inside my skull. And I can just, you know, <laughs> have this knowledge and I can carry this with me and. I might be able to apply this someday. It feels good. Well, I can also see it being the flack we get as therapists or folks that study psychology is that it's a soft science and there's some disparagement of what we do. And so when you add scientific terms and talk about the brain like you know what it actually does, I think it it moves us more fully into that role of quote unquote expert versus somebody that's just telling you stuff that, yeah, probably people can usually figure out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, it, it makes us appeal to authority or make other people when we're talking about things, see us as part of having authority just by using terms that other people may or may not understand. Sure. I wonder, it would be interesting, and maybe there's a study that's already done, but I'm going to, I'm going to put this out into the world for all those imposter syndrome folks. Like, is, does the amount of imposter syndrome correlate to the number of neuroscience terms that you use? <laughs> you know, and there's probably brain structures involved somewhere in the limbic system that would show some sort of correlation with that. Sure. <laughs> But even speaking of that, of how many trauma courses do we hear talking about things like this part of the brain lights up? Oh, that is such a pet peeve of mine. The brain lights up <laughs> in the brain scans? The brain scans show activity. We use the brain scans to show different levels of activity by showing them lighter or darker. There's not like paparazzi going off in neurons in your brain that actually make your brain light up. <laughs> So, but, but when we're talking about this, I mean, 
some of the pred- like I'm not I'm not I've not been trained in EMDR I've not been trained in brain spotting but some of the things that I hear there's a lot of neuroscience explanations that I hear within both of those descriptions that this is how your brain works this is you know this is why your eyes need to move like there is a lot of stuff going on there so we're not saying that neuroscience is inaccurate we're saying that we're overusing it or or are we saying that neuroscience is a bunch of a bull bull pucky <laughs> i was really going into the research of this episode trying to be like you know what we're we're wasting a bunch of money and time by trying to embrace neuroscience of everything. And I was sure. really trying to go into this with a very critical neuroscience seems to be something that works for neuroscientists, but the applications to mental health are very limited. Now, I was I, I will admit that I have seen a lot of positive things that I had not considered. Um, the okay. aforementioned, you know, transcranial magnetic treatments for depression come out of neuroscience. It's be it's a better version and different function for all of you people who are going to argue the neuroscience on me, but it's a better version of being able to treat medication-resistant depression than something like ECT, electroconvulsive therapies, because it can be focused more specifically in better ways. So, so we can actually push the button in the brain for depression. <laughs> We can push the world's <laughs> worst woodpecker into people's brains. For the TMS is, is good yeah, for exactly. depression. Like the, the the research is actually there and there this is neuroscience that works, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So there is plenty of good stuff that's coming out of this, but at its core, a lot of neuroscience is objective measures of brain activity or brain structures. And that's not the subjective experience of feelings or responses to societal pressures or things around us. And so in the research that I came across in preparing for this episode, there's a lot of good stuff that's coming out of this. This isn't a neuroscience bad episode. This is more of a, we got to stop it with the crap sort of things, because some of the articles that I've come across are things like neuroscience and the laws of attraction. Okay. Oh no. Okay, we got to talk more about this. Tell me tell me about the neuroscience and the laws of attraction. Because <laughs> that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo to me. <laughs> well, it, this all comes back to the point of if we say things and we add neuroscience to them, it makes us feel like we're actively doing something with this information or that there's some sort of scientific backing up to the things that make us feel good, whether or not there's any evidence to it. Okay, so, but no, like, I'm literally asking, what is the neuroscience <laughs> of the laws of attraction? Because that that really sounds a bit ridiculous. It, it is. I can try and post this. I don't have the tab pulled up here. but All right, all I, right. I, I, but, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but, you know, this is... I will is... try to manifest that article <laughs> into the show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. But, but I'll use I'll use the part of my brain that's specific to manifesting. Yes. And so these are the kinds of examples that we hear all over the place. And while there is some basis in some research, you know, you're talking about brain spotting and EMDR, going back to your question on that, that does show differential functioning in fMRI scans of brain activity pre and post treatment that does show more 
blood flow between you know neocortex and limbic system sorts of responses pre and post treatment that does back this up it actually if we're over explaining this to clients can be done in non-trauma informed ways and sure. if we're looking at these as being you know frontline trauma treatments that people are being able to use talking to a client of like oh yeah when you're going into this panic attack or you're going into this you know PTSD sort of episode and what's happening is you're going down into your limbic system and your you know fight or flight response is taking over and this kind of stuff that's all vaguely neuroscientific that doesn't help somebody in the midst of a panic attack because that is all information that gets processed in the neocortex I hear you, and I'm I'm curious if there there's a middle ground be, between saying let's not talk about the neuroscience when it's not helpful, and let's talk about it in a way that's helpful. Because I I've used fight or flight a lot, and maybe this is me having the vaguely neuroscience bug here. But but when I talk about it, I, I talk about trying to identify triggers up to that point when you go into the limbic system or you go into lizard brain or whatever it is and being able to try to get back into more of the the, the kind of the logical part of the brain or the, the language portion of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so is that just all BS? Am I, am I, am I making it so people just feel like, Oh, yep. Went into the limbic system again after the fact, uh, or, or is there actually, ways to use some of this knowledge about what's happening to try to help people to cope. Because I think my experience with clients have been that they have been able to try to catch things earlier because it feels more important to, because they don't want to be stuck in fight or flight or the limbic system or whatever. And so, you know, I'm not sitting in the sessions with you, but what I would ask you to consider is, how many times are you working on this kind of stuff with clients where you tell them this kind of stuff and they continue to run into the same triggers anyway, and they continue to have panic attacks or they continue to operate in that fight or flight response because that psychoeducation doesn't end up helping them when they're actually in the fight or flight response. I'm not saying that it's all unhelpful stuff. But part of using this kinds of information with your clients is, does it actually have any practice-based evidence that it's working for any of these particular clients? I, I'll, I'll, let me respond to that, because I think there's there's two elements that I think are actually helpful in that. One is, I do see that panic attacks or those kinds of responses go down. Now, mm -hmm. when they have them, I don't know that it helps them in that moment, but it does seem to help them with proactive coping sure. when, they're, when they're recognizing this is something that's going to happen. I also feel like it is normalizing. And so there's a lot less self-judgment of, oh, okay, after the fact or leading up to it, I'm more susceptible to this. They feel more like they, they understand what's going on. Now, I don't say, and this part of the brain and that part of the brain... I studied trauma for kids. So I talk about lizard brain and human brain and, you know, all that stuff. Being so able to relate basic, it to, yeah, to a, appropriate stuff. cognitive developmental level. Yeah, that all yeah, makes well, sense. Yeah, well, no, I'm talking to adults. I'm just saying I use it like I, I learned how to describe it to kids so everybody understands it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it does it does help in some ways. But I think when we're we're thinking that we're addressing one thing maybe we're actually addressing something else like that we're because i think it is helpful to understand the fight or flight response i mean would you 
Would you argue that it doesn't help to, to understand that? I, I, you're painting me into a corner of like, yeah, of course <laughs> I'm going to agree on this, but that's not the, the point of, you know, the takeaway of this episode, All which right. is that when we utilize this kind of information, you know, and trauma sorts of responses and being able to, you know, study whether EMDR or brain spotting work. And there's going to be plenty of people on both sides who can have that argument as far as the functions of why. And that's not the point of this episode here. The point of this episode is think of how much other times that we end up being able to just throw in neuroscience sounding stuff. You know, there is this kind of trauma research and this kind of, you know, backing behind this part of our field. But even when it's just like, you know, oh, you're going into managerial mode and you need to think with a different part of your brain here. Like, okay. you know, it, can you switch to just kind of your managerial part of your brain or is it just taking a different perspective? Like, this kind of stuff is very prevalent in the way that we end up talking with clients and it sounds believable and it sounds good, but a lot of the research just shows that it doesn't actually end up helping those who are more novice oriented. And the experts are saying, don't use a lot of extra lengthy, long scientific descriptions for things when you don't really need to, because most people will get what you're intending by speaking more leanly and direct to the interventions of what you're doing anyway. So it isn't that we stop studying neuroscience or that we stop trying to understand things. It's that we actually think about what, what is true, not what did I hear on social media that sounds pretty good, but what have I actually studied? And it's not just relevant because it has a picture of a, a brain scan. Mm -hmm. you know. So what is the basis here? What is the point of what I'm trying to say? And what's the most effective way to say that's going to have a good outcome on the client? Because right. I think in in talking about this, I think there's the the overuse of kind of the expert scientific language that I think helps therapists feel more confident potentially or or feel like they're they're talking about something scientific, but may not be at all helpful to the clients and or may not be true. I mean, like I'm thinking about the neuroscience of uh, the power of attraction. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. the the neuroscience of marie condoing your office you know like it, it's almost a mad libs of how we just kind of throw these terms in sure and we get this from supervisors we get it from educators there's a lot of places where we can point the finger at it but being able to say like you know what, this is all happening in our fields. We need to kind of hold ourselves accountable to this being something that we need to change. All right. You can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. We'll put our references over there. Follow us on our social media and continue the discussion in places like our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And if you like what we're putting out there, support us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. And if you disagree with this episode, use a different part of your brain. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelms, Katie Vernoy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. 
You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.